0: And Lord, we ask that you would be our friend even now. Lord, a friend is not a buddy, it's not someone that we can necessarily joke around with, but a friend is someone who will help us in our need. Lord, I pray that you would help us in our need right now. We need to hear your word. We need to have your word applied to our hearts so that it might be shaped and molded and and brought back into shape as you initially created us. God, I pray that you would open our ears and open our hearts so that we can love you better. We love you, Jesus. Amen. In August of 1984, at the top of the longest and steepest hill on planet Earth, my dad and I and another dad and his son stopped. The other 12-year-old who was with us flat refused to take another step. Instead of finishing the hike, which would have been a mile or so and much less arduous ground, he wanted to turn around and go back to the cars. My dad offered to hike the rest of the way to the campsite, drop his pack, come back, get the boy's pack, bearing his burden so that it would be easier for him to get there. Instead, we had to walk all the way back to the cars. Now, we stayed in the Sierras that week, but we did just driving camping, car camping. We fished, we camped, and I fumed. I was completely unwilling to forgive that wimp who bailed out on my last chance to have a 50-mile hike before we moved to Indiana. I, unlike my dad, refused to bear his burden. And though I do remember catching fish, I also caught the sickness that week of unforgiveness. Paul knew things like this would happen. That's why he gave us Galatians chapter 6. Starting in verse 1, Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks that he is something when he is nothing... He deceives himself, but let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor for each one will have to bear his own load. Now, fortunately for me on this very specific issue, I long ago forgave him. And at this moment, I am actually very thankful for the experience because it gives me a great sermon intro. That was, you got it, good. You got, maybe, maybe you just need a month of prayer meetings to remind you to laugh at my dumb jokes. I don't know. But, as with you, there are moments in my own past that I remember and they still cause my blood to boil. There are unkind comments, rude rejections, and just flat, sinful harm that have been done to me and to my family. And when I remember those, I don't want to forgive. I want to give them a piece of my mind. I want to tell them off. I want revenge. Now, if you can't identify with any of that, then you should probably leave now Because what I want to talk about tonight is how you and I go about allowing Christ to change our hearts so that you and I are no longer held prisoner to the soul-poisoning cancer of unforgiveness or worse, the aids of spiritual life, self-centeredness. Now, the cure for these diseases is making burdens lighter for others, lightens your burdens. You want to be cured of unforgiveness and self-centeredness, then make other people's burdens lighter. Let's examine Paul's prescription for spiritual cancer. He starts in the first part of verse 1. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression," You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Paul begins his passage here with a reaffirmation of his affection for the Galatians. He calls them brothers. He isn't talking to strangers, and he's not talking to non-Christians. Paul is talking to family. He's talking to you and me. The transgression he, he mentions here is any embarrassing sin that you might fall into. The sin that you get caught doing. This could be looking at internet pornography. This could be gossiping. This could be letting yourself get distracted by anything quote-unquote good that keeps you from doing what you know that you really ought to be doing. So the obvious question at this point then is, who are these spiritual ones? Who are the ones who should restore the one who is sliding back into the fellowship? When we're answering this question on who the spiritual one is, we have to be very careful not to fall into either one of two traps equal, and opposite errors. First, we need to say that the spiritual are those who have a relationship with Jesus. They are the saved. They are they, they. could even be a brand new Christian, and that person will count as the spiritual one that Paul is talking about. Because the first error when considering who should be doing this restoring of the fallen brother... The first error is that you might believe I can't match up. I can't be the one who restores anybody. I don't have all the answers. And goodness knows I don't have my life right either. Now, if you believe that, that is a lie that Satan wants you to believe. That is what the enemy of your soul is trying to convince you of. And the solution to this lie, to this problem, is to preach the good news to yourself, just like we say every week, and hopefully you are doing every day. How, then, in this case, do we trust the promise of God for you in Christ? Well, we look no further than Romans fifteen fourteen. Paul writes to a group of Christians whom he had never met. And Paul writes to these Christians, and he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another, to build one another up, to edify one another. This idea that we're talking about, I think, is exactly what he's referring to here in instruct, to restore one another to fellowship with God and our brothers because this is true because it is the spirit who works in you and through you to restore your fallen brother and sister now if the first error is believing that you can't match up the second opposite and equal error is that of believing that just because you are saved you are spiritual bear with me you think i'm talking out of both sides of my mouth here, It's believing that you have the right, or even worse than that, it's believing that you have the responsibility of straightening people out. This passage is a cure of this kind of self-righteousness, and it begins with this question. Again, the solution to this sin is to preach the good news to yourself. You trust the promise of God for you in Christ. Which promise? Well, one of them is found in Romans chapter 7. Paul writes, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And then he says in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The point is, is that you are the wretched man that Paul is talking about. You have no business fixing other people. It's not your job and it's not mine. But the Lord knows how many times I fall in temptation to that. Walk out of seminary, you get into your church, and all of a sudden you think that you have to fix everybody. Oh my goodness, did I have a rude awakening. But you know what? it is a comfort, it is a relief, it is a burden-lightening thing when you realize, I don't have to fix people. So then the question is, how do we go about this restoring? How do we go about helping people back into the fellowship if it's not, quote-unquote, fixing them? Well, a couple of thoughts follow this question. The first is we must go into the situation in which we are to restore somebody desiring that brother or sister's growth. The Bible calls this edification. Every situation you go into where you wish to confront a sin, the first Thing you have to have in your mind is you want to help this person be the best version of themselves that they can. You want to build up the kingdom. You want to build up your fellow soldier in Christ, the one who, when you fall away a bit, is going to come and get your back. And if you have that attitude of, I am here to help you, I am here to help you along while you are hurting with this then you will be able to help them seriously. The second thing that we need to do in order to go about this restoring is we must always go into a situation where we are confronting somebody with the attitude that the goal is restoration. Never discipline, or even worse, punishment. Uh, One of the things that my wife and i learned very early when we had our children is punishment would never be a part of the vocabulary of our children receiving consequences because when you punish you're trying to hurt them punishment should never be a part of that discipline perhaps But when you are called alongside of someone to shepherd them, to restore them to full fellowship with God and their brothers and sisters in Christ, the object is always restoration, not disciplining or punishing them. And when we learn these two things, we will learn that making burdens lighter for others lightens our own burdens Restoration is the goal of all Christian confrontation. If you remember that alone and forget everything else I'm going to say, that will help you to glorify God and live with an enormous amount more of peace in your heart. But Paul continues the rest of verse 1 is that we need to keep watch on ourselves lest we too become tempted. Notice that Paul knows that the people that he's talking to, both in Rome and in Galatia, are sinners. We, too, are vulnerable to temptations. Maybe not every temptation, but temptations nevertheless. Every one of us is tempted by something. And that's where this gospel promise comes into play. One of the greatest promises and all of the good news of Jesus Christ for you and me is 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. 1 Corinthians 10.13. Yes, I memorized the NIV, not the ESV. Sorry. But here's the point. This verse does not mean that everyone has every temptation. Instead, it means that we are all affected by temptation. And that, in this case, the application here, is that because of this, you cannot stand in judgment against your brother because you are also subject to temptation. We'll talk about what judgment is in a moment. But more than that, this verse means that in your temptation, God is with you, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. And because that is true for you, you can share the good news of Jesus Christ with your brother or sister who is falling out of fellowship with God and with others by telling them the exact same promise. My friend, my brother, my sister... You can stand up under this promise because, or under this temptation, because there is a promise in the good news for you right now that is preaching the good news of Jesus Christ to your friend. You can restore your brother in sin because you know that the God who loves you and will never leave you or forsake you will also never leave or forsake your brother or sister, and all of this brings us to Matthew chapter 7, where we're going to learn two very valuable truths. The first is, Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, let me tell you what this passage is normally meant, or what is normally meant when people quote this passage in our culture. It's taken as a, don't judge me. You're a sinner too. You have to let me do whatever I want to do. But what we need to understand is the log in the eye that Jesus is referring to is the condemnation, is the judgment, is this idea that I'm standing above whomever I am talking to. And that all too often accompanies constructive criticism or friendly feedback that we're giving to our brother or sister while they are stumbling. It is this condemnation. It is this, I am better than you are. It's this self-righteousness that Jesus hates. And this attitude that Jesus is referring to here in Matthew chapter 7 is exactly what Paul is getting at in this passage. And that's why making burdens lighter for others makes your burdens lighter as well. So let's ask the question: How does making or how does not judging how does not treating with contempt lighten your burden? Well, I can give you three easy answers, and they're in your notes by the way. I'm not actually going note by note, but most of what I'm saying is outlined there. The first way it makes my life easier is it makes it So I don't have to carry the intolerable burden of perfection myself. I won't ask for a raise of hands, but how many of us struggle with the temptation of trying to be perfect? I'm raising my hand. We struggle. Those of us who have that struggle, that's a serious struggle. But we don't have to anymore. We don't have to be perfect And you don't have to demand perfection of those around you either. Just ask my wife. She'll tell you. (laughs) Number two, I don't have to carry the additional burden of quote-unquote fixing people. It's not my job. I dealt with someone that was very difficult in my last church. It wasn't this church, I promise. And I was talking to a pastor friend of mine, and I said, you know, this person is driving me nuts. Greg, how long have you been there? Been there for two years. My pastor friend said, well, how, long, how old is this person? Oh, she's in her 70s. And he said, so what you're telling me is that you think you can change her in two years when God hasn't been able to change her in 70. You know, that was a major breakthrough for me in understanding, wait a minute, I don't have to fix people. Now, it's part of my job. I I try to help people all the time. And I I get people, and I, I love them, and I try to help them. But it's not my duty to fix them. And if you can take that burden off your shoulders, if you can tell yourself it's not your job to fix your children or your grandchildren, Man, your life will be considerably better. And I heard, a, I heard a little amen. I think there should be some more out there. And thirdly, how does not judging, how does not treating with contempt lighten your load? I don't have to carry the excruciating burden of treating others less than human. That's what Jesus is talking about. I don't have to treat others as worse sinners than I am, and thereby devaluing myself and devaluing those that God created. You can take a lot of burden off yourself just by saying you know what these are human beings who have their struggles and they will report to god and i don't have to fix them i don't have to judge them and i don't have to be perfect either my friends if you will do that your life will be considerably better god will be more glorified and perhaps you'll be more successful in helping to restore people as paul lays out here Therefore, to finish our verse, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And Jesus brought up a, uh, a big word, hypocrisy. And hypocrisy nowadays is a commonly thrown about word by those who wish to end an argument that they have no idea of what is going on. They don't really understand hypocrisy or calling you or the church a hypocrite is not an argument It's just name calling but it is true that hypocrisy happens all too frequently and so paul here as well as jesus warns us not to be a hypocrite but let's talk about this hypocrisy entails two ideas and both of them need to be present for hypocrisy to be present The first is this self-righteousness, this attitude of, I am better than you are, as opposed to understanding that we are tempted, not necessarily by the same things, but we are all tempted. It's this idea of, I'm good and you're not. That's the first part of hypocrisy. The second part of hypocrisy is pretense. It's a denial of the reality of your own sinfulness. An attitude of, my sins aren't that bad, but yours stink to high heaven. As my dad would have more colorfully placed it than I am going to say it right now. Everybody's poop stinks. And you know what? Yours does, mine does, your sin stinks, my sin stinks, and that's just the way it is. So get over it and stop pretending that it doesn't. As Benji, Pastor Benji has said many, many times, I stand clean at the cross. And so I don't have to hide. That attitude, my friends, will prevent you ever from being a hypocrite. So, when you restore others around you, remember that making burdens lighter for others lightens your own burdens You don't have to live with the burden of fear of hypocrisy. Instead, you can do what Paul says in verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, this verse is very interesting, and it teaches at least three things even before we get started. First of all, burdens are real. (laughs) Duh. Right? No one's going to doubt that. But secondly, it teaches that self-sufficiency is a myth. You cannot be a Christian on your own. Well, what if I were on a desert island? Okay, whatever. But you're not. You're here. You have other Christians around you. Be in community. And that's the third thing. We are commanded to live in mutual community. If you try to live the Christian life on your own, you will fail. Period. That's all there is to it. Jesus obviously knew this so he issued his own law we find in John 13:34 a new commandment i give to you that you love one another just as i have loved you so you also must love one another what on earth could it mean what on earth could it possibly mean for us to love if it doesn't mean to bear one another's burdens If it doesn't mean that we must restore anyone caught in any embarrassing sin, why is it that love is equated with bearing one another's burdens? Because bearing with one another's burdens, others' sinfulness, others' temptations, others' transgressions is difficult. People get grumpy over silly things, people are weird about all kinds of things. People are sinful. Yes, we are. It takes real love to get past these and bear our burdens. But the question is, do you want an easy life, free from all the burdens that people have, all the stinkinesses, and just live floating on a cloud, Or do you want a good life? Only by loving those who are around you, only by making burdens lighter for them will you find your own burdens lightened. It won't be easy. C.S. Lewis put this very clearly in a paragraph that I love to reread. C.S. Lewis says, To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Add to this far worse problems that we have 50 years after he wrote this. It's not just hobbies. It's, it's everything in our culture breathes. You being your own person, you being on your own, you being self-sufficient. When Paul calls us to restoring others around us, he calls us to a difficult task. He calls us to step out of our casket, out of our coffin and involve ourselves in the possibly heartbreaking activity of loving one another. But this activity is entirely worth doing because making burdens lighter for others lightens our own. Then he continues in verse 3, He says, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Remember in verse 1, Paul called on the spiritual, the pneumatikoi. Yeah, every once in a while I throw out those Greek words because it sounds fun. And I know there's about four people in here like that. The rest of you, just forget I said that. He calls on the spiritual to restore their brothers. These are the people who are controlled by the Spirit as opposed to the flesh. Now imagine yourself just for a moment, because this would never happen at Grace Baptist. I know this is absolutely impossible, but just kind of pretend with me just for a moment. Imagine there were a group of people in the church who thought of themselves as spiritual Man, that that would be a hard thing to live up to. That that would be a heady thing to have that kind of attitude. A person who is striving to match someone spiritual they saw outwardly could be very tempted to think that he is something, like Paul is warning us against here. Here. It's a kind of pride that could possibly... I, I know not here at Grace. It would never happen here. But this temptation could cause someone to have pride. It, it could cause them to be think of themselves as righteous. And then they might act self-righteously and perhaps condemn others. That person is deceiving themselves. That person who imagines themselves above anybody else is deceiving themselves. What does that mean? It means they're lying to themselves. But don't we do this all the time? Don't we think, don't we sit thinking about someone who has hurt us We start brooding and thinking of all the ways that they're inferior, that they're not really Christian. They couldn't be Christian if they were doing that kind of thing. Don't we sit and think about someone who has harmed us and we think about ways that we could get them back? And usually, how these fantasies go. We dehumanize them. We push them down. We make them less valuable than our side. My friends, this is natural. This is normal. This is expected. This is the way the world works. That's how we go about these battles that we get into with other people. But it's not Christian. And whenever you start finding yourself going down that that road, never forget. Never allow yourself to forget Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things. Your heart is deceitful. It's lying to you. And you know what? It's worse than that. It's desperately sick. And you can't even understand your own heart. So when you start playing these fantasies that you're better than someone, remember that your heart is lying to you right then, and you need to get your heart right with God. Jeremiah prepares us to be humble when we come to our passage in verse 3. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And here, Paul's reminder stands as his own sentence to draw attention to itself. And, oh, God, save me. How many times I have fallen into the trap of thinking that I knew what someone else needed when all of a sudden I had this great big old log sticking out of my own eye. For the kingdom's sake, for God's sake, working in you and through you and for you in others confront your brother and sister. Go to them, restore them, and make sure that you do it with a humble mixture of love, truth, and love, as Ephesians 5 tells us. Because making burdens lighter for others lightens your own burdens. When we get to verses 4 and 5, our hero, Paul, kind of makes a shift and he moves in a slightly different direction. And we have to get this shift if we're going to understand the passage. He says in verse four, but let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. One last time, just so all of us get the message, make sure you look at your own heart when you desire to confront someone. Let each one test his own work. Test your work. Make sure that you have a clear conscience before God. Test your work so that, catch this, this is, this is important, that you can boast in what God has done in you and then through you. Make sure that you are being that pneumatico. You're being that spiritual person who is being controlled by the Spirit. And the word here that's translated boast has as its base the idea of rejoicing. And the word is stronger than rejoicing, though, and that's why the ESV translators chose boast, I think. The idea that Paul is giving is that when one is living such a life, he or she will be able to rejoice, to boast in the fact for themselves that God is working in them and then through them as well. And Paul makes his point clear about rejoicing in what God is doing in him by adding, and not your neighbor, i.e., not rejoicing in how your neighbor isn't matching up to you. Your boasting that Paul is talking about here in verse 4 is not I boasting over you or you boasting over me or of someone else, but just this rejoicing and this boasting, God, you are great because you are doing this work in me. And through me. Now, the reason, a reason, the reason Paul gives here, that we cannot boast over someone else, that's sinful, and the Bible describes that all over the place. But the reason that Paul gives us here is that each one will bear his own load. Now, verse 5 needs its own comment, because above, in verse 1, Paul said that we must bear one another's burdens. Specifically, Paul meant that we were to help each other out bearing these embarrassing sins. When your brother or your sister is embarrassed because of their transgression, you go beside them and give them a hug and love them and restore them. Lift them up so that they can be restored to a right fellowship with God and with others, including yourself. I love, uh, I have begun quoting Pastor Benji on this. He calls them our fallennesses. I love that word. We bear these fallennesses by helping to restore one another in a spirit of gentleness, not this self-righteous condemnation that we've been talking about as if you could be better than anyone else. This bearing of these burdens requires a good deal of humility this bearing also requires a good deal of courage but here paul chooses a different word and here it's important that we understand what's going on in the greek this time it's a word that's translated load and here i think for a number of reasons i'm not going to go into right now i think that paul is particularly pointing at the final judgment Each person will have to stand in front of his own maker and stand of his own judge, and he will have to bear his own load. It's a different word than was translated burden earlier. And because this is true, because you will have to stand before your judge and I will need to stand before my judge, I must bear my own load. Now, if that's true, if it's true that I will stand before my master and I will take my approval or disapproval from him, that means you cannot also stand over me. Because you are not my master. I am not yours. I am not your judge. You are not mine. Therefore, I will bear my own load before the Lord. My goodness, that is so freeing. That is such a blessing that I don't have to take that burden for you. (laughs) I love it. Praise Jesus. You should be rejoicing right now because it takes an enormous burden off of you. So then what do we do? If we want to obey Paul's command to bear one another's burdens, Let's follow a couple of ground, clear ground rules for helping a brother relate to his or own, her own sin. You have them in your notes. If you look, it's at the, on the back side. And I kind of gave a six-step thing. This isn't inspired. This is just me. And actually, I asked Pastor James to help me work on it too. Oh, and I helped him write one of his points this morning. So he helped me here, but I helped him there. So you can ask him which one. Number one, make sure that your own sins are confessed. Listen, if you're going to go confront somebody, make sure your sins are confessed. Enough said on that. Secondly, make sure you understand the person or the situation. He he who speaks before he hears is a fool. Man, I have fallen to that so many times. Make sure before you go in there with guns blazing, you understand what's going on. Make sure that the situation really is a sin. Maybe the thing you want to confront someone who's about is just an opinion matter. You just don't like the fact that they know for a fact that orange is God's favorite color. You know, if you want to confront a sin, make sure you have a Bible verse. And make sure not only do you have a Bible verse, but make sure that Bible verse means what you think it means. This is why, by the way, Jesus says in Matthew 18, take a witness along with you. Number four, make sure you want what is best for the person who's in front of you. Make sure you are really desiring their restoration, that they become a man or woman of God that brings glory to him and not just trying to accomplish your own personal agenda. People will see through that faster than a pane of glass. Fifth, make sure you're not trying to protect your own pride. That's a tough one. And then number six, this is one that I spend a lot of time working with couples who come in for counseling. Make sure that when you're confronting your spouse or your child or whoever else, make sure that you are communicating love both in how and when you're confronting them. If you confront them on some sin that they're doing while they're doing the dishes, guess what? They're not going to receive it very well. Make sure you do it when they are in a place that they can receive it. So do the dishes for them. I heard my wife say amen. (laughs) No, she didn't. She's a good girl. Well, I'm picking on her tonight. I'm going to have some answering to do tonight, aren't I? (laughs) My friends, this is a place where you need, you and I, we need to be better. Take this sheet home. If you have any questions, please do call, and I would love to talk to you more about it because I am not perfect either. But let's pray now. Lord Almighty, I pray that we would be men and women who are about making burdens lighter for others. And God, I pray that you would be glorified as you work in us and through us for our good, for your glory and for the growth of your kingdom. God, bless us tonight and this week so that we may indeed be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.